three years ago, I was sitting at Catalyst, and uh, they asked us just to pray about whether we should sponsor a child. And so I was praying about that. I said, yeah, I'll pray, I'll pray. I'm not sponsoring a child, but I'll pray. And uh, so I raised my hand. They brought me a packet, and uh, I just started reading through it, and, and it was Gilbert Okoto. And as I got to his birth date, my, my heart kind of froze because his birth date is the same birth date as Caleb's. Uh, a few years behind my Caleb, but uh, January 27th, and I was like, okay, God, I get it. You want me to sponsor Gilbert? And so it's really cool to get his letters and see his pictures and, and uh, hear what he kind of thinks America's like and what's going on in his place. But my, my uh, sponsor, a Compassion Child, is in Ghana, and someday I'm going to go see Gilbert, and uh, hopefully he gets to come here someday. But there's different packets at the back, and, and you can stop by and get those. You can go online. It's really cool because you can go online. You can pick a country. Um, I'm not even sure what all countries we have represented back there. But a lot of times what they'll do is they, they will send the, the packets out of kids who have not had a sponsor the longest. And so um, we don't want you to guilt. We don't want to guilt you into this. So I'm just going to tell you that, that 38 bucks may sound like a lot, but, but as you, if God tells you to do it, he's going to supply more than that $38 and you're going to get blessings in other ways that you couldn't even imagine. Uh, we are, we are doing, uh, finishing up our two week series, too legit to quit. Y'all remember how you do it? Too legit to quit. All right. Everybody try that too legit to quit. All right. I'm not going to make you sing or dance or anything like hammer did. Uh, that was kind of, kind of painful last week, but anyway, but last week we said that, that commitment means to pledge yourself to a position no matter the cost. And we said that God wants us to be committed to the big three. Spiritual commitments, relational commitments, and vocational commitments. And so God created you as a spiritual being. And so the number one relationship that you need to be focusing on that has more benefit for you, more payoff for you than any other is your relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if that's the highest relationship, smart, wise people will spend this life uh, trying to get to know God better. The next on our, um, our, our agenda or our, our pyramid, and I've got a pyramid here, and, and this is just, I know you can't really see this, but the bottom is your spiritual life. That's the base. The middle is relationships. The top is job. And this is the way God wants us to focus on it. So if your spiritual life is right, everything else is impacted in a positive way. If your spiritual life is wrong, everything else is impacted in a negative way. Our relationships, God wants us to have a priority in our relationships relationships and it will uh, positively affect everything I can uh, everything else I do if I'm close to God spiritually it makes me a better husband father neighbor and citizen it makes you that way too and then when I when I am a good husband and I uh, focus in on my wife it impacts my family it impacts this church when I treat my wife the way God wants me to treat her and then at the very top is our vocation and God takes your job very seriously in second Thessalonians Paul said if a person is not willing to work he should not eat. I mean, this is, there's, there's no real welfare thing in the, in the New Testament. Paul says people need to be willing to work if they want to eat. And then he said that when we do our job, we should do our job as if God is our boss, not some human. So scripture has a very high priority on your job, just not in first place. Now, here's what happens. A lot of times we invert the triangle. We invert the pyramid. We put our jobs as top priority, relationships as next, and, and our spiritual life last. And so if you had a pyramid sitting here, a physical pyramid, how stable is it going to be like this? Not. It's going to fall over. You see it like this. It's supposed to be. God designed you where your spiritual life impacts everything else in your daily life. And when you're doing what you should be doing, 
uh, then everything else is going to go in a positive way. Now, if we build our lives on relationships or jobs, we're building our lives on sand and everything's going to fall apart. It eventually will. So if we know that everything comes crashing down, we see it over and over. Why do we do it? Well, the short answer is we're an instant gratification society. We want everything now. And when it comes to work, what happens every two weeks or maybe once a month that brings you joy? It may not bring you enough joy, but every two weeks or once a month, what do you get from your employer? A paycheck. And and it may make you feel good, right? Not good enough, but yes, good. It gives you some value. Some men spend all of their time at work because that's the only place they think they're valuable. And it's, they think that by being the provider of their families, they think that's the end all and be all of who they are. But I want you to ask any family member of someone who has a very, very wealthy dad if they'd rather be filthy rich and never see their dad or poor and spend time with their dad because way too many families I know like that. Dad is married to work. His wife is kind of his, maybe his mistress. I don't even know if you could call her that in some cases. And his children are hurting because dad thinks job is the end all and be all. And God, God approves of work. God approves of relationships, just not in first place. Because he said, I want to be first. And God is a jealous God. Other folks, they do this, this relationship thing. They build everything on the relationship. It used to kill me when I was a youth minister because I would see boys or girls in, in my youth ministry and they would completely turn their backs on God and on other friends and family members, all for the affection of the opposite sex. And 99.9% of the time, those relationships failed. And, and don't think it's just teenagers. I see, it, I see the adults doing it too. Loneliness, lo, la, 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 la. loneliness, I was speaking in tongues there. Somebody give an interpretation. Loneliness, oh, that's it. Loneliness makes you do dumb things. Makes you date people you wouldn't normally date. Makes you go on more dates than you normally go on, right? Because you're thinking that that person can fill. You're trying to, to shape that person into God and put him in that spot him or her in that spot that only God can fill, and you're going to be sadly disappointed. And I'll tell you this, that is 99.9% of those relationships in, the only ones, the one out of a million that work are the ones that recognize what they've done. They fall on their faces before God and repent and say, God, we want to do things your way. When people do that, anything is possible. So having our spiritual lives is the best way to live, and it's the only way to die. And a lot of people don't do it. And I think it's because we're such this, we, we're into immediate benefits. And uh, God's time frame isn't usually our time frame. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, God tends to move at the speed of a glacier. And I actually have some time-lapse video of a glacier. Let's kind of watch it in action for a second. Now, if you were sitting there just staring at a glacier... Can you tell whether it's moving or not? No, but when you have a time-lapse photography, you can see that these glaciers make a huge impact over time. Some of these glaciers are 350 feet thick. You got a 350 foot thick thick sheet of ice moving forward. What's it going to do to stuff in its path? 
is going to change them. (laughs) It's going to impact them. God tends to move in our lives at the speed of a glacier, not at the speed of sound. And we get impatient. We try to take things into our own hands. And and if you'll look at, at at the scope of your life, you'll see that God was moving all the time. There's an Old Testament story I want to look at today in this. This story happens at a point in the history of Israel where actually God's going to begin the nation of Israel. God chose a man named Abram. Later, he changed his name to Abraham. Uh, When God showed up, Abram was 75 years old and his wife was 65 years old. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation through you, Abram, and I will bless the whole world through you. Now, up to this point, Abram and Sarah had no children. Now, if you were going to choose somebody to start a nation, would you choose the Centrum Silver crowd, the Geritol crowd? Would would you be going to the nursing home saying, I need to volunteer? No, God didn't ask my opinion, but uh, that's how God chose to do it. Now, she was unable to conceive, and so God comes and he says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Now, notice, God did not, he left out this very, very important detail. He didn't say when he was going to bless the world through Abram and Sarah. And when Abraham, later his name is changed, Abraham is 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90 years old, they have their son Isaac. 25 years. Are you kidding me? Is God in the remedial class? Does he just not know how to work faster? What's up with God? Um, I think it took him so long is because when you're looking for the father of a nation, it's a big deal. Because as goes the father, so goes the next several generations. And so God had to take some time to mold and shape the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham had to learn to commit his life to God. He couldn't wait until Isaac was born to try to become the father that God wanted him to be. So over the next 25 years, Abram becomes a man who is a friend of God, the scripture says. He makes big mistakes along the way, but eventually he becomes a man that wants, that the man that God wants him to be. And, and what you need to realize is all of life is a test. And if you're committed in those little tests, God's going to give you bigger tests. Now, he has a test here for Abraham, a huge test that he's going to take him through. And it was designed to prove his faith, to prove whether he was a man of commitment or not. And so for it to be a real test, this is on your listening guide, it had to defy logic. If you're going to start the people that eventually Jesus Christ is going to come from, you have to have a good test for the Father. So it's going to defy logic. Sec- secondly, it had to be something that Abraham wanted to resist. Because if it's, if it's a fun thing, then everybody's going to sign up. But it was something that he wanted to resist. Read several verses, and then we're going to break it down. Genesis 22, 1 through 13. After these things, God tested Abraham's faith. God said to him, Abraham, he said to him, here I am. Then God said, take your only son, Isaac, the son you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Kill him there and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Those of you who have children, can you just imagine you have a child that you've been praying for and trying for, and God says, I want you to kill him. How would you do it? Those of you who have teenagers, you might offer them... Might have to take you up on that one, God. All right. Um, Verse three, Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He took Isaac and two servants with him. After he cut the wood for the sacrifice, they went to the place God had told him to go. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. My son and I will go over there and worship, and then we will come back to you. That's a big statement. Remember that one right there. Verse six, Abraham took the wood for the sacrifice and gave it to his son to carry, but he himself took the knife and the fire. So he and his son went on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, Abraham answered, yes, my son. 
Isaac said, we have the fire in the wood, but uh, where's the lamb that we will burn as a sacrifice? Abraham answered, God will give us the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. What does that say about his faith? I mean, what does it say? Because Isaac was probably a teenager, 12, 13 years old, and and he must have an incredible relationship with his dad because his dad says, let's go camping. And then he says, let's go sacrifice. But there's, you know, and he's going, yes, sir. Okay. Abraham answered, God will give us the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. So Abraham and his son went on together and came to the place God had told him about. Abraham built an altar there. He laid the wood on it, and then he tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the wood on the altar. Then Abraham took his knife and was about to kill his son. But this, this just freaks me out. I did a paper on this in seminary, and I thought about, this was before I ever had a child, and I thought about what, what the son must have been thinking because his dad tied him up, laid him on the wood, and he took the knife. Because, because they knew what a sacrifice was. It meant you had to, you slit the throat of the lamb, you drained its blood, and then you did all of the sacrifice. So Isaac has seen this his whole life. And he's laying on the wood going, I'm now the sacrifice? Then Abraham took his knife and was about to kill his son, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham answered, yes. The angel said, don't kill your son or hurt him in any way. Now I can see that you trust God and that you have not kept your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham looked up and saw a male sheep caught in a bush by its horns. So Abraham went and took the sheep and killed it. He offered it as a whole burnt offering to God and his son was saved. Um, See, Abraham knew two things. He knew A, God had said he was going to bless the whole world through his son Isaac. And B, God said, kill his son Isaac. It couldn't possibly be reconciled. But Abraham goes, okay. You think he learned something in the 25 years from the time God said, I'm going to give you a child to the time God gave him a child? He learned to trust his heavenly father. This is amazing to me. He was going to obey. He was committed no matter the cost. Isaac asked, where's the lamb? Dad says, God will provide. And if this had happened 30 years earlier, if he had had a child earlier in his life, I do not believe that Abraham would have been ready to obey God regardless of the cost. And God's response, now, now this is the cool thing. We get the benefit of seeing back. We're not there with Abraham when he's walking through this. We see back and we know that God's response to Abraham proved that God intended to save the boy the whole time. He never intended because killing a child, sacrificing a human being was abhorrent to God and to the Israelites. It was a test. And Abraham passed the test and he became the father of the Jewish nation. This passing of the test set the stage for the future of Israel because as goes the father, so, as, so goes the next several generations. And, and Abraham's obedience affects us today because Jesus Christ eventually became one of the descendants of Abraham. So even though it seemed to take God forever to bring about his deliverance, God had it planned. When you look, if, if you were to stretch a line from that side to this side and you put a little minuscule dot right in the middle, that minuscule dot represents your life, my life on the planet. That minuscule dot represents how much time it was between Abraham and Jesus Christ coming and between Jesus Christ coming um, the first time and Jesus Christ coming again. It's minuscule compared to eternity. So as you look at all of that and you think, okay, God has a big picture view. I have a small picture view and that's why I get impatient and try to take things into my own hands. Well, there's some lessons we can learn very quickly. Number one, commitment starts in the heart. You don't fall into love 
You don't fall into, come on, I'm walking along and I fall into love. There's Janie. I mean, I did meet her at youth camp. I thought she was a pain in the rear because the first time I actually saw her, she was hitting on one of the guys in my youth group. And I was like, I want to go home, little girl. I mean, this is how I thought of her. Now, when she saw me, she thought she was going to marry me, but we didn't fall into love because we dated for a while. And then we found out that we don't even really like each other. And we broke up, went our own separate ways, grew up. And then I went, the first time I went back to see her, I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to declare my my intentions here. I will not date you without the possibility of marrying you because I'm tired of this whole thing. I'm where God wants me to be, and I'm looking for the woman God wants me to have. And Janie goes, sweet. She said, I'm in. And we got married. We committed our lives to each other. We stood before God and before my brother as the pastor and before a whole bunch of witnesses, and we made a commitment. You don't fall into commitment. It starts in your heart. So I want to know where your heart is. And you can tell by what you're committed to, where you spend your time, where you spend your money. That's what, what's going to reveal what, uh, what is valuable to you. And really, this was the whole test here. You cannot claim to follow Christ if there's any other human higher than God. I've been telling people this for years because I was youth minister for 19 years. If, if, you're, if the person you're dating, you put them higher than God, that is an idol and God is not in that relationship. God removes his hand from you. But when you put God first, he'll bring you the right person to spend your life with. God did not, does not provide for us until personal sacrifice has been made. It costs you something. You want to know what God wants? He wants everything. But in return, he gives you the benefits of being a Christ follower. Number two, commitment is tested by action. Nothing is easier than saying you're going to be committed to someone. Nothing is harder than proving it over and over, day in, day out, till you become one of those couples who die hours apart. We were talking about that the other day, the, the couple that, that died 19 hours apart, been married 70 years, and they just did not want to live on this planet without each other. I want to be one of those. If I live that long. Speed, I love speed. I, I, I thought this was funny. Um, a newly elected judge said this. He had won office, and so he was, he was speaking to everybody in a special county election. During his acceptance speech, he says this. I wish to thank the 424 people who promised to vote for me, all right? I wish to thank the 316 people who said they did vote for me. I wish to thank the 47 people who came out last Thursday to actually vote. And I wish to thank the 26 people who voted for me. A lot of people said, I'll vote for you. I'll be there on election day. They didn't show up. 46 people showed up to vote. 26 voted for him. 47 showed up to vote. 26 voted for him. It's easy to say you're going to be committed, but what you do determines, well, it, it actually demonstrates for everybody else your commitment. Number three, commitment opens the door to achievement. In life, there's some things you ought to procrastinate because some things are just not worth doing. And I think we're doing too many of those. Don't procrastinate. See, a lot of people say, oh yeah, I want friends, but they would rather watch friends on TV reruns than go to a small group and be friends. They would, um, <laughs> they would rather read the newspaper than read their Bible. 
You can worship God or you can worship something else. The the choice is yours. But if you want to be a person who is after God's own heart, you have to be committed to the right things. And when you are, God gives you things like peace. And, and, you know, I talk about this all the time, but let me just explain peace to you. Would it be cool to be the person that no matter what is going on in your life, you are filled with peace in the middle of the storm? Quite literally, that's Jesus Christ. Because you remember the time Jesus said, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. They get in the storm, it's so bad. The disciples are screaming out, Jesus, we're going to die. Where's Jesus? Jesus is asleep. Now think this through. If Jesus is the son of God, do you think God's going to let him die in the lake? The disciples weren't thinking that. And wasn't Jesus, wasn't he able to walk on water? Wasn't he able to say to Peter, Peter, walk on water. And as long as Peter watched Jesus, he could walk on water. I mean, think this through. If you're in the center of God's will, there is nothing in this world that can harm you without his permission. But outside of his will, there is nothing that can help you. And we spend way too much time outside of the will of God. And then get mad at him for not rescuing our sorry tales when we were disobedient in the first place. That makes no sense to me. I imagine when when they woke Jesus up and they said, we're going to die. I think he just smiled. I think he said, peace, be still. It was perfectly calm, still smiling. I think he went back to sleep. And the disciples went, they're falling down and worship him. He's going, leave me alone. I'm sleeping, you know. How could he be calm? It's because he knew God was going to take care of him. And if you know God's going to take care of you, then you are calm in the middle of the storm. Well, how do you get these benefits? Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the message translation. I did this on purpose because I want you to get a new perspective of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. If you if you know any other translation, you know it says living sacrifice. And so we're supposed to willingly crawl up on the altar and offer our lives to God. The problem with the living sacrifice is it can crawl off of the altar too. And we do that all the time. Oh God, take me. No, not right now. I'm going to be busy over here. But he says, lay it before God. Embracing what God does for you is the best, way you can, best thing you can do for him. Don't become some, so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The best things in life require commitment. The relationships you want require commitment. The the job you want requires commitment. Everything requires commitment. This service requires commitment. The band comes on Wednesday night. Sometimes we practice for two and a half, three hours so we can get four songs ready to worship God before you. They show up at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. Nobody sees that stuff. The people who are back in the back, they're folks who come up here every week so that they can make copies, so that they can get things prepared, so that all the teachers can just read through the stuff and know what they're doing back there in the, in the children's area. Joe does all kinds of preparation for the youth ministry. Nothing happens by accident. It requires commitment. And what we're asking is more of you to get off your sanctified butt and serve. Because there's nothing attractive about a sanctified butt in a pew. I mean, we're, we're close to a point where we need to go to two services and everybody back there in our children's area is scared to death because they said, that means there needs to be two of us. 
the ones who come at the 11 o'clock hour would need to be ready for the, the 10 o'clock hour. And, and we, we don't have that. And I said, yeah, we better start preparing because that's where God has taken us. And we need people who say, I'm not just going to sit around and, and become a fat Christian. I'm going to serve. Because that's where you really grow in your relationship with Christ. Because I'll tell you, when we, when we come up here and we rehearse on Wednesdays, John says this all the time. He goes, I love hanging out with y'all. And, and we do. We have fun. We laugh. We give each other a hard time. We pray together. And we grow spiritually just so that we can stand up here for a few minutes and, and maybe help you encounter the living God. Everything worthwhile in life requires commitment. And we're in a commitment-phobic society. God wants everything in your life. And when you offer your body as a living sacrifice, God says, I'll get involved. And here's the key. God knows that when you give it up to him, he can take your messy, jacked up life and he can put it together and make this beautiful picture. You know why he does it? it uh, he loves you, but it's not for you. The Bible says that he does it so that he can demonstrate for all eternity his wonderful grace that he pours out on people he loves. He takes the worst people and puts them together and then it's like a diamond shining. You know, when they put them on that black background and they shine them, they show you the best diamonds. They don't show you the trash that they're trying to stick in your ring. They show you the good stuff. God says, I want to show all of you messed up people that I've put back together. I want you to be shining examples of my grace and my power for all eternity. That's why he does it. God's not going to share his glory with you. He does not share his glory. You don't get up to say, Ooh, look at me. God says, no, 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 no. Look at Jesus. And, and he wants your life and my life to be a reflection of that. And, and the proof is really in the pudding. Because quite honestly, you know, we talk every week about our, our baskets at the back. And, and we have some people that are committed to that. I've tithed since I was 19 years old. That's 10% of my income. When, when I was making $300 a month, I gave 30. My rent was 160. That doesn't leave a lot. I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, told you that. I've been committed to that. I've been committed to, to Janie since I was 26 years old. I've been committed to Caleb since he was born in 1995. Rachel was born in 97. Hannah was born in 2000. I've been committed to them. And I've been committed to this church since June 22nd, 2002. And I don't intend to go anywhere else with my life. As long as God leaves me here, I'm going to be here. Because I think this is what he wants me to do. And God has called you to be a part of that. But just sitting here, that's not a part. I mean, yeah, we're, yay, we're glad you're here. How? Stinking hard is it to get here at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? I mean, come on. Some of you need to be coming like the men came in this morning. Some of the guys got here at 7.30 to cook for our, our um, leadership breakfast. I mean, I just think you want more than just sitting, right? I, I think the reason you're here is because you know there's more to the Christian life than just showing up. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? I'm not going to tell you that, that just because you get a compassion child that your life will be awesome. But my compassion child is kind of like icing on the cake. 
Now, I'm going to tell you that, that I was trying to get all out of debt. Everything paid off before I ever got a compassion child. And, and once I got the compassion child, God showed me that he kind of he wanted me to do that. And he's helped me get out of debt. We're going to be debt free before long. Pay off our house. Woo-hoo. And I believe that's because we've been obedient. Some of you just need to ask God, what is it you want me to do next? What is next for me, God? Some of you need to get your, your pyramid in the right order. The reason you keep falling over is because job's number one or relationships are number one and not God. Just in this silence, ask, God, what do you want me to do next? Small group, serving, whatever it is. You say, yes, I'll be willing to do it. Father, would you raise up an army of people committed to you and committed to each other because you said that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. We want to be a radical church who reflects Jesus Christ to a lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your registration cards real quickly. Fill those out. Ask you to write something on the back. Some of you need to figure out where your pyramid is. We talked a little bit about this last week. Some of you wrote down your commitments. Some of your commitments were jacked up. You knew it. You were, you were saying, oh, I need this. But, but just tell me, what is your number one commitment? And then tell me what you need to do next in your relationship with Christ. Do you need to go to small group? Some of you put that on there, but you never show up. Some of you need to serve. You put that on there, but you never go back and talk to anybody about serving. Some of you need to come to men's group, women's group. We got all kinds of stuff going on. You just need to make that step, so write that down. We have three baskets at the back. One is our joy basket. Uh, That's where we give, but you can also give online. A lot of people do that, nlccp.com. Two is our bagel basket. All, everything that goes in there, every penny that goes in there goes to uh, pay for expansion of our church. And I told you last week that it's going to be about $42,000 to concrete out here and get a covered drop off. So we're, everything that goes in there, we're adding towards that total. And then we have, what was the other one? Registration card basket. I did them out of order, confused myself. Uh, everything that goes in there, I read those cards. So if you have prayer concerns, write it on there. If you have um, any praises, God's answered prayer, write that on there as well. And I'll go through those. I want to show you one last video. This is a 60-second commercial for the New Ladies Bible Study by Priscilla Shirer. Anybody heard of Tony Evans? Tony Evans is an incredible pastor at um, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And Priscilla is his daughter. And the uh, study that they're about to start is, is done by Priscilla. Here's a 60-second clip from that video. I wonder how it felt to be Gideon and the 300, hunched over campfires like this one overlooking the valley as tens of thousands of members of the enemy troop were just waiting to annihilate them. I wonder how it felt to be on the hillside that night. Take an adventure with me into the experiences of Gideon and the 300. When you do, you'll get to see, I'll get to see exactly the same thing that Gideon and his 300 learned that night. That the strength of the enemy is never a match for the strength of God. And that somehow our weaknesses become a platform on which God can demonstrate his strength to the world. This is going to be an adventure that we won't soon forget. I'll see you soon. Monday night, May 12th, over here at the house, that ladies' Bible study is going to start. Um, I saw you a second ago, Rebecca. Rebecca Stanley is going to start that. So ladies, if you want any information, go see her. She'll be back here at the table. She doesn't know that, but she is now. Also, there are compassion 
packets back there. If you want to talk to anybody, talk to them about that. We'd love to see a lot of our folks. Last year, 28 children around the world were sponsored by New Life People through Compassion Sunday. So go back there and check those out. You're dismissed.